0: Today, as we go through a lot of the story of Joseph, I mean, it's it's a big story, and doing it all in four weeks is, is a bit of a whirlwind, really. Um, but some some key themes or or takeaways that I'm taking from the story of my study that I'd love to have you share. Right, that these would be not just my thoughts, but actually your thoughts this week. Which is where taking a note on one of these, if it if it means something to you, is helpful. Right. You put it on the fridge, and the big one that just screamed at me this morning all the more as I was I was reviewing one more time, uh, and you know in this journey of trying to see Joseph as a a paradigm, a picture of the Christian life, the promises given to him and the rainbow cloak, or the promises given to you in your baptism—you've been called, you've been anointed, you are justified, you are sanctified, uh, you're gonna be glorified. So, so knowing that, as our identity in Christ, that we're not here to justify ourselves to God, we don't need to prove anything to God, we don't need to sacrifice anything to God, except for maybe our praise, our time to sing his name, and that's not really a sacrifice, it's a great joy. With all of that then there, what's the wisdom Joseph's story can teach us? Because we know the days won't always be filled with happiness. You know, Seven years of famine, seven years of not famine, right, on and off, there's waves, there's ups, there's downs, that's life. And the, the biggest takeaway I got from this, uh, I love, is because it's, it's the takeaway from Jacob in the same story. Because right now we left Jacob. He's despairing at home. He thinks one son's dead. He thinks the other son uh, has been taken away. And the, the one who he really considers his only heir, um, he is idolized to the point of terror where the guy can't leave his side. Uh, so ups and downs again. I mean, he just had this great success of, of you know meeting Esau, coming back to the land. He's a rich man, right? All this. So Jacob's story is the same. And and Job's story is maybe the the clearest one, if I want to let you know where we're going. Job's story where he he has it all, but he doesn't have any of it, and he has it all again, right? I mean, all three of these stories are the same way, and wouldn't you know, isn't that what Jesus does? Well, he has it all. He's the king of the universe. He's God. And he gives it all up, gets born in a stable, gets crucified, then he gets it all again, all back, right here of God, only you know, mankind with him on the way. And that's kind of the purpose. Um, and in the New Testament, life is no different. Paul, what does God say to I think it's Ananias? Is that right? About Paul, you know, go baptize this guy named Saul. He's like, No way, that guy will kill me. And God says, Oh, no, no, no. I'm gonna show him how much he must suffer for my name. Oh, okay, I'll go baptize him then. You know, off he goes, you know, but it's the same thing. And what is it? It's that, you ready? You write it down. You're going to go through it. You're going to go through it. Whatever it is, it's not stopping. And it won't all be good. It won't all be bad, but you're going to go through it. And then, you know, that's true for everybody. If the unbeliever on the last day, having gone through the fire and flames of this life and the waters of death, is going to have his face in the dust of heaven below the throne of Jesus, kissing the dust, saying, Yes, you are Lord. The only difference between the pagan and you is he's going to have his face in the dust, and you're going to be standing up with a glorious crown that you're going to throw down, right? Uh, because, Because for you, this is good news. For them, it's bad news. You know it ahead of time. You believe it to be true. The kingdom is here. And so you're going to go through it, but you're not going to go through it alone. Because Jesus is going to be behind you, in front of you, inside of you, around you, and he's promised you're going to be better off. No matter how you look at it, you're going to be better off in the future than you are today as a believer in Christ. It must be true. And I'll even be so brass and bold as to say, I am gladder to be living today than I was yesterday, if only because I'm not yesterday. I'm today. It's the only time I get to live, and I'm going to go through it, and I'm not alone, and I'm going to be better for it, because in Christ, that's the, the facts. It's just the facts. yeah. And so, Joseph, we get to see this in this big story of, you know, how can you actually be better for it when you're 11, well, 10 brothers betray you, fake your death, and sell you into slavery, and you do a great job, but you get caught up in a twisted plot with some What word should I use? Female dog? Does that help? Uh, Who then puts all the burden on you and you end up in jail instead? For years and years and years, how how are you going to come off thinking, I'm better off for this, unless you have a promise that is so much bigger than what you see and you believe that promise to be true, which isn't just about the next life for Joseph and for Job and for Jacob. and Well, honestly, for Jesus, he rises from the dead in this life and he talks to Peter in this life and sends Peter and Paul in this life It's not just about the future. But how then can I know that I'm blessed in this life when everything's going wrong? Well, that's just it. You must know beforehand, the second thing. God can only give you success when you believe that the problems are not problems, but gifts. There's nothing that arises in your way. Thorn, thistle, side road, pathway, evil person, toxic face, I don't know. Nothing is not God's gift to give you the power to rule over it all with the word of God in confidence and hope. Every single thing you face for the rest of your life is that. And the only thing keeping you from that is believing that. Which isn't about, are you a Christian? It's more about, you like, and this is really important for discipleship. Like when you get up tomorrow morning, what do you tell yourself? And maybe you don't know, you tell yourself stuff in the morning, but every morning your head starts talking to you. And it's probably a lot like what you said yesterday and probably a lot like what you said before and probably a lot like what your grandma said. Unless you've intentionally changed it because you realize you don't like talking to yourself that way because it's rude, which most people don't think about. But I'm going to encourage you to think about it here, right? What do you say to yourself? And I encourage you to say things like, whatever problem comes is a gift from God that's meant to make me grow. It's a fact. And I can't lose. Not in that game. I can lose the game of financial security right? I can lose the game of what? You know, hippest, coolest guy. We're all going to wear out eventually, right? But I'm not going to lose the enduring name of Jesus Christ and its power to, in my dying gasp, give me love, hope, joy, peace, patience, all, of it, all at once, and to rest I go. And that's here now. I don't have to die for that power to be in my mind. I do need to use it rather than let it sit on the shelf. The name of Jesus, the otherly it must be in our mouth somewhere, some way, in our ears, somewhere, some way. And then every problem is a gift. I mean, you want me to tell you about spilt coffee again? You well, know, it, it is, has been my life. And though I've spilled coffee less since I bought a cup in Alaska with a wide base, <laughs> I still spill it. And I have many other reasons to say hallelujah in my week that aren't reasons to say hallelujah. Most people would say Jesus Christ, except they wouldn't mean a good thing when they said it, right? They'd mean it like it sounded right there a moment ago. And what I'm suggesting is you get up and you say Jesus Christ. I don't know what else to say next. Don't don't, don't worry about it. Just move on, right? Call on your God's name. He answers prayer. Let's take that with you. Number three, and then we'll get to the story. This one's interesting. This is a little more like, like uh stronger, I mean, a little bit here. And, and this is the fact that if you, if you never find your place, you're never going to have a place. Yeah? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this like real stark for a moment in American terms, right? I mean, we say like, he really put him in his place and, and that's not a good thing right? Or, or someone might say of his wife, she doesn't know her place. And, and he means that like in a very derogatory way, right? And so like a lot of things, if we listen to the way most people use the words, they end up being kind of depressing bad words because <laughs> they're all depressed bad people with no faith and no hope. <laughs> so they fill their words with despair. Uh, but the words themselves, if they're from God, are good. And, and the idea that you would have a place where you belong is why we have a word like home, <laughs> right? home is my place right? and to be put in my place is actually what I want desperately most days of the week Right? I would like to be home <laughs> and there where I'm home I'll have my things and those things have their place because they're under me and that includes my wife and my children and all the things that aren't human and so are less valuable than them but they're still all mine. They're my family. And I, as the Father, am the one from whom most of them spring up. Right, And all of this, of owning your place in your family or in your workplace, for sure, in the church, in the universe, it's really about knowing your place under God. Because if you're in your place, it's the one God made for you. Which means that while it's still fallen with the rest of us, it's actually really good for you. It's what you're supposed to be. Most of the world's trying to make up what it's supposed to be. Come up with some story. I'm not what I was born. I'm some other thing. I swear. Give me drugs. You know, cut things off and all that. They don't know their place, and it's not that big a deal. Like you're born into your place it's a gift again but if you only think the problems are problems and that they're not gifts if you have no hope in a future in which god is going to bring you through it for your good well then how would you ever embrace a place where there's thorns and thistles right and that's what the rest of the world can't do they got to try to make the thorns and thistles go away and christians we're stunning why do we endure why do we outlast because we just deal with the thorns and thistles and keep going certain of something more I'm not saying that there aren't unbelievers who can have grit. They can. They can. But the current spirit of it isn't building grit among the young people, let me tell you. <laughs> grit is the opposite of what we're going to get in this next generation. All the more reason for you to believe that your faith in Jesus is like ultimate grit. It's way better than grit. Grit's just a grumpy old man who got tired of arguing, right? And, right. But, but what you have in Christ is that certainty that Stephen had. to be like, oh, no, no. I don't care who you think you are. I'm going to tell the truth right now because it matters. And I'll go ahead and say this, even though it's online here. I I think this is probably worth it. Uh, Roundabout, want to protect names. But in the last week and a half, there was something that came across my plate from a member of the congregation that was just a little little thing that was typed. And um, this person clearly was in pain, I think. Excuse me. But what this person did was this person lashed out at somebody else, not me, somebody else who I'm supposed to take care of, right? Not my family. You don't need to worry about the narrows of it. But what I what I know, the resolution that came to me out of that was, you know, whatever is hurting in your life right now, you don't get to act that way here at St. Paul Lutheran Church. You don't get to be that way to other people. Because all of us are hurting. All of us are trying to make ends meet. All of us are facing a world where there's too many things to do and not enough time to do it. So we're just going to lash out at each other every time something goes wrong. We're going to tear ourselves to shreds. It's not just my job, but it is my job to herd us away from that kind of behavior. That's why we're studying the way we are, is because the only way we improve as a congregation is that we as families and individuals improve our actual faith. We can put on programs and shows. You know, we could probably get a football team to come in and get 300 people to show up just to get the autographs. That ain't church though. And whenever one or two people stuck around because they like the party, they aren't going to grow. They're going to sap the life out of the congregation. And what we're doing now, we're really in a mission phase as a congregation where we are seeding our future by believing that individual consciences set free by an understanding of the Word of God are a power to change everything, everywhere, today, tomorrow, and forever. Because again, it's the promise that you're going to go through it, it's going to be for the better, it's because He is risen. Alleluia. Okay, we're going to pick up our story with text, Uh, around chapter 44, verse 6. That's page 38. And let me just give you the story up to that point. We're jumping over a little bit of text that we could have looked at. Um, We left Jacob uh, unbelieving, unbelieving, uh, at Hebron, I believe, uh, and, so in the, the central northern area of Israel, near, say, the Oaks of Mamre or the Cave of Machpala, where the burial sites are. This is land they actually own. Um, not much land that they own at all in the Holy Land at this point, but he owns this. He bought it. Um, and he's up there, but uh, they've got the food that Joseph sent back, without Simeon, right? Remember, Simeon's in jail. uh, And all the other brothers, this will be now nine of them, come back. They got plenty of food, but they're supposed to bring Benjamin down. And, And dad says, no way. If he were to die, I don't know how I could go on. Now, this is a very real thing that most of us face with some other human somewhere in our life at some point. Don't you dare pretend otherwise. You absolutely know there's some human at some point in your life where you thought, if they die, I don't know what I would do, or where you think about it now, right? And then the fact is, all of them are going to die. Every every single one of our people is going to die, and it might be before we see it coming. And so if you take this approach that Jacob takes, if he dies, I don't know what I'll do, um, you're setting yourself up for a whole lot of pain that you don't need. You're going to have pain when they die, but how about when he dies, God will surely bring him back from the dead. Or when he dies, I will surely know he rests in Christ. That'd be what we can say. But again, for Jacob here, he's got this promise that we don't have, right? His promises are really unique and they're fulfilled in Christ. So we have greater promises, but kind of not in a sense. Like he really has promised his family is going to be okay. And Joseph gets a dream to confirm it. Right, They all bow down. I mean, even mom, which is weird because she does die. But nonetheless, we know that all the sons are going to bow down. Jacob could know this ahead of time. He's had the visions himself. He saw the ladder. He's got the sign of circumcision. It's, a, it's inherited reality. He chose Joseph as the prophet. He wanted the guy to get the prophecies. He has the dream. And then, oh, I guess he's dead now. I'll give up on everything. I mean, didn't dad... Me, didn't grandpa Abraham like get ready to sacrifice dad, Isaac, in the full conviction that the promises are so real, that the God is so true that even death can't stop it? And again, we find Jacob hold up, afraid to let go of Benjamin. To the level where he tells all of the brothers, This is my only son. How'd that feel? Christmas and Thanksgiving time. You know, and Judah who the only thing he's done wrong is private, right? So, so he's the fourth of Leah. Leah is Rachel's sister, Joseph and Benjamin from Rachel, the beloved, right? Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. All the three above Judah have taken themselves out of the running for inheritance uh, by a number of actions, murdering people, um, having sex with people they shouldn't have sex with in the family, that kind of thing. And, and But Judah remains, and, and Judah remaining is the one who then sees Joseph and says, hey, let's get rid of him. You see how Judah can angle here maybe for some, some stuff a little bit. And now again, uh, Judah, the same one, does dad trust him? Judah's the one who's got to say, give me Benjamin, right? And dad says, you're not even my son. Benjamin's my son. And they're all starving. The grandkids don't have food. Dad won't send him because he's hanging on to Benjamin for dear life. Everyone's getting skinny and scrawny. scrawny. Can you imagine? I mean, just see how lack of faith led to worse circumstances just because of stupid actions. So that when Judah finally does, you know, say, we could have gone twice over if you'd let us go, we would have been back, right? And so they go. And uh, they, they see Joseph, and the moment when Joseph sees Benjamin is really powerful in the text. I see if I don't think I can quite point, point us there. Um, uh, if you want to make a note for yourself, 43, 29 to 31, you can look at it later. Um, where, where Joseph's trying to put on this whole I don't trust you thing to the guys, because he doesn't. He hasn't seen dad yet. He doesn't really know if they're good men, and for good reason here. Um, and yet, uh, he just can't stop but stare at, at Benjamin. And he even has to leave. He just he shuts the doors, he goes by himself, and he weeps. Because it's just it's just too much. How many years? Um, I have the dates on a different card. 18 years. I mean, 17, 16 years. Another life. He left it all behind. He named his kid. I forgot. <laughs> and then there's that two-year-old brother. Now 19, 18 years old. With these other guys. He just can't. He just can't. But but he still doesn't know either. And so he comes back, keeps it all together. He throws a party again. They they eat. He gives five times the portion to Benjamin. The guy can't eat all the food. know. Yeah. And and they drink together. They give him all the grain. And then he sends them on their way. But he does this thing with his you know his right hand servant, in his hand. It says, take my cup, my, my chalice I drink out of, which y'all think does magic. I don't think it does magic, but everyone thinks it does magic. Take my chalice and, and put it in you know, that guy's sack, uh, Benjamin. I know. <laughs> what's up here is, is really Joseph asking the question: Who are my brothers? He really wants to know who they've become. And we're gonna pick up now where they've they've left in the caravan, they feel pretty rich. They're kind of like, whoo got out of there because that guy's scary and a little weird, right? Uh, and they're they're on their way, and out comes you know Pharaoh's troops, and they surround the caravan, and that's chapter 44, um, 6, where we're going to pick up, page 38. Uh, when he overtook them, that's Joseph's man, he spoke to them these words, which that's from above in, in verse 4, why have you repaid evil for good? Right? And again, put yourself in this. I don't know if you can do it with modern military, if you need like Pharaoh's chariots, but like here you are, you know, 15 guys surrounded by 300 of the most armed, vicious looking, powerful, and very angry people that you could imagine saying, why did you repay us evil for good? It's an intense moment. Uh, verse seven, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? There's some integrity here. They're like, wait, what? Like, no, no, really. What? Huh? Uh, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. We wouldn't do that to you. We're happy to get out with the food. Thank you very much. And Simeon's back with us. This is a good thing, right? Um, verse 8, behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Like we're trying to give you money and you're giving us stuff. Why would we Why would we do something evil like steal from you? Verse 9, and then they make the really bold claim. I like this because you see the barter language of the old world where people don't say quite what they expect. They tend to exaggerate, expecting that the other person is going to exaggerate back the other direction. And somewhere in the middle, they'll find where they really are going to get so here they have this kind of like bold oath a little bit, right? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, <laughs> and we also will be my lord's servants, right? All all ten of us will just become your slaves, even though we didn't do it. And you can kill the guy right here. Again, it's it's a little bit of like uh, you know you know <laughs> I have a wife and kids at home. How can you take so much from me, right? They're 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 pleading uh, belief. But the result is no, we're still going to search your sacks, right? So, verse 10 uh, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent, right? So, the, the Egyptians barter back with pretty good justice, I would, I would counter if it were actually what Benjamin had done, right? Um, and so, they, each man lowers his sack to the ground, they open his sack, and uh, they begin with the eldest and end with the youngest. I mean, Joseph did that on purpose. That wasn't an accident, he made him sweat. <laughs> uh, and then they tore oh wait sorry I skipped it and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack so Judah who stood before his father and said the rest of my life I will bear the blame of being an evil failure if Benjamin doesn't come back now he's watching this cup come out of Benjamin's sack and there is nothing he can do about it what do they do? they tear their clothes verse 13 they tore their clothes I I did a little attempt to research that. I don't have the right resources to figure out the history of tearing your clothes. (laughs) But what is interesting is that like before the modern world, everybody did it. And it was basically a sign of something bad. But like, okay, so your husband dies. You're going to tear something. You're going to rip something and you're going to scream a lot. Guys particularly, your wife dies, your brother dies, you're going to rip your clothes. You find out you're going to be in prison the rest of your life you just rip your clothes why it's a prayer actually it's a sign to God you you got nothing left I need to be clothed now <laughs> I got nothing right uh, it's it's a powerful powerful moment and it shows you the the utter despair these men were in they were done whatever they thought life was they packed up their camels and they went off to jail or death they're pretty confident of that I would imagine at this point. Yeah, ripping their clothes. So, uh, that was verse 13. We're going to, let's see here. Yeah, we're going to just keep going line by line still here. Verse 14. Uh, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. Of course, he's ready for them. He's planned this. They fell before him to the ground. That's wise. When you have a conquering overseer with all the military power, go ahead and pay obeisance. Right? It's, it's a good idea. Don't stand stiff-necked before the conqueror. That's stupid. Uh, Joseph said to them, uh, "What deed is this that you have done?" And then I, this is a fascinating tidbit. Did you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Which is, it's really interesting. Like, like there's a little bit of, hey brothers, don't you know I had a dream about this? Yeah, like he's not just talking about the cup. Like somehow in all of it, they're bowing down before him right now. It's the first vision, not the second. The first vision, there's no sun or moon. Right? Uh, so he's he's kind of he's kind of letting them in, but not yet. Not yet. Uh, And Judah said, uh, this is the part we heard read. what What a story. I won't read through it all again here. What shall we say, my Lord? He's like, I got nothing, man. I thought I did everything I was supposed to do. I've tried to do everything I could do. He doesn't confess at this moment that I'm the one who sold the other guy into slavery, but he said it out loud last time they were here. So he clearly has mentioned this in Joseph's hearing, and he puts himself in the middle of it all, and he says, go ahead, take me. He's free to go. Joseph's like, I will make you my slave. The rest of you go home. And he tells this whole story. You want me to go back to my dad now? Now? No, take me instead. Please. Put me in the lowest prison. Beat me, scourge me, flay me, do whatever you got to do. Send Benjamin home. And that's when Joseph can't take it. Right? That's really when the whole moment of mercy and forgiveness that we know overflows from Christ to his disciples at all times. Now is there poured out in Joseph for his family and for Judah, who he doesn't hate, but wants to forgive. let's let's look at that part of the text here then uh, chapter forty five verses one through eight, bottom of the right column on page thirty eight. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, "Make everyone go out for me," which is to say, he made all the Egyptians go away. Because you're not supposed to see God cry, <laughs> and he's not God. He's he's not Pharaoh, but he he kind of is in Pharaoh's place. He's working for Pharaoh as the right hand. He's got his signet. He's he's supposed to look like a god everywhere he goes. And so you know, eye makeup you've seen they definitely did that. Uh, and so he's not going to be sitting there in tears in front of all of his servants. Certainly not going to hug these Hebrews, who his servants considered dirty and so he sends he sends everybody out um so no one stayed with joseph when he made when he was made known to his brothers and he wept aloud i love this so that the egyptians heard it and the household of pharaoh heard it so you know again, he sends everybody out and yet they can hear you know, from inside they can hear it you know i don't know when the last time you wailed and tears was um i'll confess it happened to me this year and it's a horrible feeling. It's a good feeling too. It's kind of weird when you let it out how helpful that can be, even though in a moment it's just like it's just like this, huh, thing. and And so he does that here uh, before them because they, they are, they're his family, uh, his brothers. Um, I, I was gonna say one other thing and I, I left it behind just on a note on the the bit about him being in Pharaoh's shoes. This is the second year of the famine, and according to the extra-biblical records, the pharaoh, who is the pharaoh that had the dreams, uh, who put Joseph in power, he died in the first year of the famine, which is awesome. It means he got to live in seven years of plenty at the end of his life, and right before it goes bad, he went to rest with his fathers, or maybe with us, actually, since Joseph was there to talk to him about Yahweh. Uh, And then, uh, it's going to say in another part of the text here, that Joseph is like a father to Pharaoh. Oh, well, that's interesting. That probably means Joseph's older than Pharaoh's son, who's going to be who is Pharaoh now that Pharaoh is dead. But Joseph still has control of the government, right? And he's he's really acting like Pharaoh as a steward for this younger younger man who will grow up and become uh, the Pharaoh. Uh, so all of that again, kind of around this at this moment in history, and we'll maybe touch on some more of that with the Goshen politics maybe next week. Uh, but now again, so he he makes himself known. Remember, Jesus in the upper room too. Let that overlap the story here as we go through it. Um, so no one stayed while he made himself known. Verse two, he wept aloud. I said that. Verse three, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Right, Jesus says, peace to you. It's kind of the same idea here, right? Yeah. I just want to see the family. I just want to have life be what it's supposed to be. Uh, and by the way, Joseph as a name means increase. It means increase. I am increase, yeah. uh, which is what his whole life story is about in a lot of ways. His brothers could not answer him; they were dismayed at his presence. Right? They're just baffled. Hey, you, know, you saw someone you thought was dead fourteen years ago. You're gonna be a little surprised when he shows up as king of the universe too. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's quite the story. Uh, he had to tell. Uh, so Joseph says to his brothers, right, he sees that they're stunned. Come near, please, he says. They came near. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Well, oh, This could go two different ways from this point, right? Where's oh, What's coming next, good or bad? Good. Now, do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves. <laughs> Notice the forgiveness of self involved a little bit there. That's a thing. Uh, do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Go back to where we were. You're going to go through it. You're going to be better for it. The key to success is believing the problems are a gift. And uh, if you're in the right place, if you're in your place, well, then you're in the right place for what you got to do next. Joseph saw all that. He accepted every place he was in as being the right place. And then just like that, what's he going to do every time he can? Preserve life. That's why he cared for the cells of the the other prisoners. They didn't need to be cared for at all. He cared for it. Why? To preserve life. And in his preservation of life, what came with it? Favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. That's not Christianity. That's just the world, actually. That's the way the world works. Christianity says that's true. Christianity says that's something you can't save yourself with. You can't get out of hell with that. But it is how life works. And Christ saved us with a greater version of the same, which is to say there's nothing you have that you've not received. And whatever you've received is there to be shared. And Joseph's going to share it with his enemies, even if they're members of his own household. He explains further that, you know, it's not just about them, it's about everybody. The famine has been in the land two years. There's five yet in which we will neither plow nor harvest, right? He's like, God put me here to help everybody. So whatever happened, I'm over it now. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, which is a nice thing to see as a promise to the church at every time as well. You can highlight that verse and apply it to your life in the Christian church. It's straight across. Uh, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And this is the hardest thing, right? When somebody dies, who killed them? It's always God, every time. Precious in God's sight is the death of his saints. So when Christians die, he was doubly on duty. He wasn't not paying attention. He was right there watching and ready to bring them home. Uh, It is not you who sent me here, but God. To, To know that in every moment, God has put you here and you have what it takes because you're not alone. You're in Jesus Christ now. You're born again from the dead forever and ever. And his word is a light to your feet and a life to your path. For that, for Joseph, that meant he got to be Pharaoh. Father to Pharaoh, he says, verse 8, Lord over all his house. But now, turning to turn the end of this a little bit, you know, hurry, he says, verse 9, and go to my father and say to him, thus says your said your son, Joseph, God made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Right Again, dad's home starving, right? <laughs> go get him. Go get everybody else. Get the grandkids, the great grandkids, the servants. You got some neighbors that have been hanging around because they're starving too. It's 75 people is what we know. 75 people in all come down. He says, come down here. Here's his promise in verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. I've mentioned Goshen several times. We're going to try to talk about it more specifically next week, make it part of the story. Uh, But it's good land. It's the Nile River Delta. It's it's the best land in Egypt, actually, or, or was. Um, You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children. That is the great grandsons. And your flocks and your herds, all that you have. I will provide, for there are yet five years of famine. Uh, Verse 12 And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. And of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Uh, from there, you know, Pharaoh will learn of this. How old is Pharaoh? 12, 14? I don't know. Um, but he, he says, go ahead, you know, send some wagons, some money, some food, uh, go get this guy, bring him down. But Joseph can't quite leave. Why? He's managing the food supply for everybody, you know, single-handedly kind of, it would seem. I'm sure there's some clay tablets involved, but you know, he's still doing that. Uh, so they go back, um, Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them pre- provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothing. You know, packing for a vacation or packing for a trip, right? Like he's ready to go, this guy. He's, he's in great honor. And it's going to take multiple days. So he gets to change his clothes like a wealthy person. You know, count your blessings. That's your blessings, Americans, right? Uh, these days, these days, let's pray they don't come back. Um, but to his father, he sent ten donkeys loaded with good things from Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, provisions. Uh, he sent his brothers. They departed. He says, "Don't fight, <laughs> don't quarrel on the way. There's enough. You know, stop arguing over the piece of cake. We'll bake another cake." Uh, there's plenty of gods in charge here. Um, why all the stuff for dad? You're going to see dad doesn't believe it. We're going to get down there in a moment. Dad doesn't believe it. The stuff's going to convince him to, to go. Um, so verse 25, they went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan. And they told Jacob, Joseph is still alive, right? He is risen, kind of, sort of. Uh, yeah. uh, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Uh, and Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Hey, Thomas, how you doing? I will by no means believe. It's it's not so different, and we're all in the same boat. And I don't say this so we can spit on Jacob. I say this so we can recognize how hard it is to trust. And when you find moments in your life that you don't, don't act like you're so special. You're just like the rest of us. You forgot. But the promise of Jesus is that he's not going to forget. That's it. That, that's his promise. He's not going to forget. And since he's not going to forget, he's not going to let you forget in such a way that you truly do. He'll bring you back every time. And that'll be an hallelujah. That'll be a Jesus Christ as a word that you say, a name, right? Uh, it'll be coming again to the Lord's Supper. It'll be one more day opening your Bible. It'll be praying the Psalter. Yeah. Well, Jacob has to wake up a little bit here, and he, and he will. Uh, they told him all the words of Joseph. and He saw the wagons. And the spirit of Jacob revived, right? Okay, I can maybe believe it because there's a lot of money. <laughs> it shows you where our hearts tend to go, isn't it? Isn't it sad? Um, Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him. And then they prepare on this journey, which is it's quite a journey. So they're up in uh, the Hebron Oaks of Mamre area. It's central Israel. It's, again, this uh, space kind of near, I want. it's not too near Shechem, um, uh, but it's not distant from Shechem. Uh it's land that they own. Is where uh, now Abraham's body, uh, Sarah's body, Isaac's body, and Rebecca's body will be left there. Rachel's body, I believe, is also there. Um, and there, no, 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 she was buried near Bethlehem. That's right. It's a little different. Um, but anyway, so they're going to leave that spot, and this is important because in the story, Jacob's going to want to go back and be buried there. We'll, we'll see that as an overlap next week, and Joseph will also give instructions in the Exodus, for his body to be taken back to be buried there at this spot. But they leave that spot. Let's look at chapter 46, verse 1. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Different spot. So on the south border of Israel, kind of the last stop before you have a lot of desert and Sinai Peninsula. And so it's not really the hot land. But there's there's some wadis there, and, uh, and there's a well there. That was dug by Abraham, and it's called the Well of the Seven. Uh, Abraham offered seven ewe lambs as as an offering to purchase the rights to claim publicly, I built the well when it was in dispute with him and a king named Abimelech, who didn't really want to dispute, but some of his shepherds were disputing. And so Abraham forces him to take the seven lambs as proof that it's Abraham's well. You can call it buying it, I don't know, the old world. It's like, let's try not to fight. What do we have to do? That's, that's sort of what it was. Um, and and yet the word seven is the same word as the word oath in Hebrew. So it's the well of the oath, which they swore an oath to each other that this well was built by Abraham. And I believe you can still visit Beersheba to this day and see some of this stuff, which is, again, what's amazing about our religion is it's not a bunch of ideas. It's not. It's a history. Uh, so the well of the oath, uh, Jacob will stop there, and then, wouldn't you know, God gives him a vision. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, chapter Verse 2, chapter 46. God spoke to Israel in visions in the night, more than one, and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So he gets a, a affirmation of what he already knows, both from his own visions, from what his fathers have told him God has said, from Joseph's vision. And now one more time, Jacob, you little trickster, you little deceiver, you little doubter, I have never left your side. I've been with you from the start, and you've tried to run away, but I'm not even going to let you. And again, Christians, that's that's the promises you get in your baptism. You didn't choose to be baptized no matter how old you were when you got baptized. Jesus said, I'm going to baptize people, and it's going to save them. <laughs> and then now you're baptized, so own it. Own it. There is no bad ending. There is no, it doesn't turn out. The worst tragedy will be a success. And you might not see it in this life, but you're going to see it. You're going to go through it. You're not going to be alone. You're going to be better off on the other side. Verse 28, again, um, of chapter 46, just to absolutely closes here today. It's near the end of the chapter. Um, it says he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. I kind of already mentioned that, but uh, you know, Jacob and all the, the seventy-five people and all this stuff—they don't go directly to Joseph. Um, they go to Goshen. This place has been prepared for them, and then uh, Joseph is going to go and, and visit Goshen uh, and. Uh, let's see here, that really is where we're going to pick up next week. I'd like to get to the end of the chapter, but next week, verse 28, uh, Joseph visiting Goshen is, is where we're going to pick up. And then the story isn't over at all as the brothers have to figure out how to trust each other um, as Jacob's going to die. He's going to bless the sons before he dies. We'll look at all of that kind of stuff. But I want to just leave you with this last kind of picture, though, of what this must have been like, this moment when these these refugees these sheep herders who live in tents after two years of famine, during which they are starving, during which the rest of the world will sell everything that they have in order to have food. Uh, they are brought down into a, a place that's bountiful for sheep, uh, for, for herding, a place that has rivers and a good soil. I mean, everything you could possibly want, small cities that are part of an empire. Uh, and and it's, th- it's like where the rich people go to get away from the city. And they're all there, and they're like looking at their new mansions. And little kids with their bare feet are running about, leaving tracks everywhere, right? And the dogs and whatever. Uh, and then you get the noise, and in comes this massive procession of, of military and chariots, and in comes this guy on a chariot, and at this point, he's got a full beard and a big old thing on his head. Maybe I should be shaved, I suppose, because of the Egyptians. He doesn't have a beard. He's got the beard on the on the Pharaoh Tutankhamen type, right, hanging off the bottom of his chin, the big, massive thing, and I want you to see it all. He's quoted in a rainbow. He's wearing a cloak that's got color on it. He's got to. That's who he is. And he comes in and he sees all the family. And it's not, oh, good, my brothers are bowing down to me. It's, what's that one's name? What's that one's name? Can I hold that one? Can you, can you feel the tears in his eyes that had to be there? In the name of Jesus, heaven's going to be the same. Amen.